what you want to do is try to get that timeline as close to the bad act. My guess is someone surveilled her. So we're probably talking about somebody who has a fixation on her. I hope we find Molly. Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous, multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code best case. That's code best case. Hello and welcome to best case, worst case. This is Jim Clemente, former New York City prosecutor, retired FBI profiler and writer producer of CBS's Criminal Minds. And with me today in the studio is... Hi, everybody. It's Francie Hakes, former state and federal prosecutor. Jim and I are back in action in the studio today and very excited to bring you guys a special episode where we have some of our favorite guests back. And can I tell you, our listeners say you are their very favorite guests with us are... Maureen O'Connell, FBI agent, retired. And Bobby Chacon, also retired FBI agent. And we're doing a special episode today launching XGTV. And Best Case, Worst Case is going to have a sneak preview of it right here on this episode of Best Case, Worst Case. That's right. Right here, right now. We have a very interesting, very difficult and sad case to discuss today, though, Mm -hmm. with us and Bobby and Maureen. And that is the disappearance of Molly Tibbetts. It's all in the news this week. Everyone has heard about the case. Let's just recap briefly, and then we can talk in depth about what's probably going on behind the scenes in the investigation. Molly Tibbetts is a 20-year-old college student from Iowa. She went missing July 18th. That's the last time anyone saw Molly Tibbetts. Police have been looking for her. Family's been looking for her. She had a boyfriend. She was last seen by anyone jogging. But recent evidence suggests that she was possibly on her computer later that evening of July the 18th. So she's been missing now for two weeks. And I wanted to use this great panel of experts to talk about what might be going on in the investigation. One of the things that has been commented on by the family in the news is that they don't really know what the police are doing. And I think the public isn't sure what the police are doing. So my first question to this great panel is, why aren't the police telling the public what they're doing? Well, first of all, in any active investigation, there is an obligation on the part of the police to conduct a thorough and and specific type of investigation to whatever the crime is. But they want to make a case. They're not 
in the business of letting the public know what they're doing because that can actually interfere with the investigation. Sometimes there's a very strategic reason the way they handle the public relations of a case. Sometimes you let more information out, sometimes you let less. It's really should be the driving force behind that strategy should be whatever best for the case. The case in this case being finding this girl or finding the perpetrators who committed this crime. And although times have changed, there's an old saying back when we all started that we're in the business of collecting information, not disseminating. And we do tell people a lot of, a lot more things now, but a lot of these things really do have to be um, held close to the best. But we're seeing a real shift in the last five or six years where people are starting to put information out there and ask for help early, which, which is important in a case like this, I think. Well, typically what we did in the FBI was assign a family liaison officer, somebody who didn't necessarily know what was going on in the investigation, but who could act as the liaison between the family and the investigators. And that did a couple of things. One, it made sure that the family knew that the investigative team, whoever it was, was very involved and they cared about what was going on in the family. Two, it sort of insulated them so that they didn't inadvertently give information to the family because the family is not trained in law enforcement investigations. They don't know what's important, what isn't important to keep close to the best. And so it's better if they are not just given every piece of information. Of course, it's difficult. They want to know that their daughter or their sister or their friend is being sought, that, that we're really making a Herculean effort to find her, but they can't know everything. And there has to be a balance. And what's really most important is that we get her back alive and that they make a case against anybody if there's criminal activity involved. And, and quite frankly, the sad truth is that in some of these cases, particularly early on, some of the family members may be in the pool of suspects. As sad as it is, awful. as awful as that is to consider, that's part of the investigation. Well, it's always in, in any kind of, and, and this looks like a potential abduction investigation, you always have to rule out the people closest to the victim. And if the victim is away at school, away from the family, the family kind of dissipates there, but then it's her close friends and maybe boyfriend or associates that you have to look at. You have to rule out that tight circle around the person first before you look anywhere else. Well, in this case, they have ruled out her boyfriend. She was staying at his house, but he was 100 miles away. They have investigated his alibi and announced that they've ruled him out. So, Maureen, I think for me, this brings up an interesting point about a possible abduction case. You did crime scene evidence. You collected crime scene evidence. You're an expert on crime scenes. Where's the crime scene in this case? Well, the crime, that's obviously yet to be determined, but it's its looking more and more based on the Fitbit information uh, from her jog that it's going to be um, the initial uh, location. And a crime scene, by the way, can have many different locations. You can be abducted in one location, not assaulted, the, assaulted in, a, in a third, and then um, killed in, a, in a, another one and then dumped in another one. So we may have multiple crime scenes in this, which wouldn't be... Um, out of the ordinary. But one thing that the family or that the police is probably trying to do and tried to do early on is to develop her um, DNA profile through known things at her home or her parents' home, uh, develop her fingerprints so they'll know them just on the off chance that something does in fact happen and they find something that they have something to compare it to right away without you know starting that up then. So there's all these wheels in motion and a lot of these uh, a lot of these aspects of the um, of the uh, 
of the investigation seem linear in fashion, but in actuality, it's a small cadre of agents or police officers working down that line, but we all work together like a great big spider web. Well, and Bobby, some of the basic investigative steps when you're talking about a missing or possible abduction case, what is it that the police and the FBI, because we know from news accounts the FBI is involved in this case, what are they doing behind the scenes to try to find her? Can you give us some of the first steps? There's two major, kind of two major areas. So they're doing a physical search. So you have people in the woods. The community often turns out to help because it's a very manpower intensive endeavor to actually go physically, you know, yard by yard, you know, house by house to look. So that's the physical aspect. The other thing is investigators are going to try to piece back together her last hours, when she was last seen, and work back when where she was seen before that. Because what you want to do is try to get that timeline as close to the bad act, the abduction, as possible. Right, because you want to really close that window of opportunity. You want to know exactly to the second, if you can, when she was last seen alive. And then from there, you move forward to when she was reported missing. And that's sort of the window of opportunity that we have. So... In this case, though, I have to say, I wrote an episode of Criminal Minds called Target Rich about a situation just like this. And it was based on the fact that when young women and young men go to college, many times it's the first time they're ever away from home for a long period of time. Now, this happens to be in the summer, so I'm not sure what the circumstances were. Was she still staying around school? She was staying at her boyfriend's house? Was that by the campus? Was that somewhere else? But the problem is that college campuses are target-rich environments for offenders. In other words, they draw people who would want to take advantage of people who are there, young people who who may be out of their element, who don't know the neighborhood so well, who don't have a, a structure or foundation in the area, and therefore they may be wandering out or running or doing errands on their own, and maybe there won't be people looking out for them. So... This seems like a situation that could be somebody that was made aware of her through the fact that she was on a campus with lots of other people, and she may have been singled out because she was particularly vulnerable at this particular time in this particular place. Well, and one of the things that's developed in this case is that in the beginning, all the news accounts indicated that she was last seen jogging and the Fitbit information that Maureen, you mentioned earlier. But then it was later, a few days or even a week later, we learned that police had recovered computer evidence that at least suggests after her jog, she went back to her boyfriend's house and was doing schoolwork, homework, some kind of work on the computer. So to me, that very much changes what, uh, Jim, I've learned from Criminal Minds, is called victimology, right? So to me, there would be a difference in if she was taken or abducted or targeted while jogging versus being in her own house working on the computer. I mean, isn't that a different environment? But was she in her own house or was she in her boyfriend's house? Well, she was in her boyfriend's house, but I mean, so just what's the home. circumstances there? Did they live together to the exclusion of anybody else or was uh, he in, in his, his family? How close was that to the school? Yeah, so, well, I don't know how close it is to the school, but I do know that she was basically house-sitting for her boyfriend, watching his dogs while her boyfriend uh, was out of town doing this job. He was out of town for work, and so she came in to, to basically house-sit and pet-sit for him. So the boyfriend lives with his brother and his brother's fiance. The boyfriend and his brother, their family owns a construction company. They had a construction gig 100 miles away in Dubuque, which is where the boyfriend was, and that's all been validated. But I think what when you were so, – so that those are the circumstances. So, so, so where's 
the well, brother, the, the brother and, and, the, and the fiance were getting ready to actually get married out of the country. Yes. In fact, I think this weekend was their, their wedding, wedding day. And so they were out of the country preparing to get married. So they were not in the country when she went missing. That's correct. She was alone in her boyfriend and his brother. and. Okay. Well, that house. raises the risk level here. She's in a home that's not her own, right? She's babysitting basically or house sitting this home and the pets. So she's there alone out of her environment. That, people, that makes her more vulnerable. You start a list of people who knew that. There, there's, a, there's a finite group of people who knew she was in that house. The boyfriend was out of town. The boyfriend's brother and fiance were out of the country. There are people that know that information. And that's key information that could, could have led to a predator to take her. Well, some of the people that were interviewed um, said that they saw her run all the time. They always saw her jogging. They knew that she jogged. She had a regular routine. She liked to do it late in the afternoon. And one of the men said, and I see her at church every Sunday uh, with, with my family. We sit in a similar location within the church. So whatever she did, she she did it you know, on at a regular the same basis. time, on a regular basis. Mm, so very she predictable. Yes, yeah, she, she could have been surveilled. My guess is someone surveilled her. And um, that was part of his whole process, whatever he was doing. And then he saw her, no other lights, no cars. He, he, who knows how long he, he was watching her. Yeah. And I want to know, I mean, on the timeline, where was she in the 24 and 48 and 72 hours before this happened? Was she going back and forth to school? Was she working a job? Was she just sort of hanging around this house during the days right before she went missing? And did she go out and run into somebody? Did she have a casual conversation that could have been overheard by somebody else? Uh, did the boyfriend say to a friend of his, hey, check in on her? Uh, those kinds of things can lead to a situation that can end like that. And we spoke about information too. If, if one of her friends, for example, and this is hypothetical, one of her friends said, oh yeah, she mentioned that there was a you know van or somebody, it seems to be somebody hanging out. Police may be in receipt of that information. They may not want that information out Of course there. not. Right. So that might be, so some of these cases where we see information being withheld and very frustrating for the public, very frustrating for the family, it's, it's a strategic advantage to the investigation. And that's really what counts. And that's what the investigator's primary objective is to, to have a successful conclusion. We have separate victim, witness, family liaison people who do that stuff. And as Jim said, they're kind of uh, se separated from the case because of that. You don't want the family getting too much information. And because when you think about that, what you just said married with what you just said, when you have when you have information that you don't feel comfortable giving the family for whatever reason, and one of the reasons is they're extremely emotional. And when you're emotional, it, things aren't very predictable. So you don't want the family to know. You obviously then can't tell the public. So some, some of the things are just to either shield the family or if it is, let's say, hypothetically, we saw this van and the family member knows someone that drives a van like that you know, things can get a little bit um, dicey. Well, let's talk a little bit about electronic evidence. It's one of the things I did as a federal prosecutor was electronic technology facilitated crimes. And today, especially for a 20-year-old, she must be on social media. Well, the fact that there's information that she was last, quote, seen on the internet, that means that there is another option, that somebody could have gotten access to her through that. Well, and she sent her boyfriend a Snapchat. 
photo. That's where the last time he heard from her was that she sent him a Snapchat photo sometime in the evening of her disappearance. So that was after the run. That's right. That's right. So we've got her Fitbit, which we understand that from media accounts that the police have been tracking. We have her computer activity. We've got a Snapchat uh, photograph sent. What about her phone? Right. And you said the Fitbit. In other words, she still has it on? Well, I don't know that she, I don't, I mean, I don't know the police have said she has it on, but what they're saying is they are able to get access to the Fitbit activity so they could see things like the route she ran that day, how many steps she took, where she was right, GPS located the last time she had t- it on. Oh, so she didn't have it on when she was reported missing. Well, police haven't told us that, so okay. I don't think we know Because that. if she had it on, then presumably there's a time period after she was abducted or right. after she left. Right. that that would have tracked Yeah, her. and they're not telling us that. And yeah. I, I, if they know that, they're not saying But something. so the but, Fitbit is interesting because here's what I would do as an investigator. If I have that Fitbit route, we all know that we would be door, what we call door knocking every single solitary door to ask two questions. One, did you see her? B, did you see anyone else? Was a car driving by slowly or anything like that? So they're asking every single solitary person on both sides. And of the street. it's really important to identify all those people, but yes. also ask the further question, who else lives here? Who else comes here every day? Who else has stopped by your house to do or work, not. to deliver packages or whatever? Because what happens is that expands the number of people who could have gotten access to her on that route. Yep. And so that makes this case incredibly complicated. I mean, the Fitbit evidence helps but on the other hand it also makes this a bigger investigation because you know her route you have to talk to everybody not just the people that live on it but like you said jim all the people who may interact on it and could have seen her jogging and use that as an opportunity because not only do the police know her route because what fitbit does and what a lot of these apps do is you can upload your route there are challenges you can work out with other people and they're doing five miles a day you're doing four miles and so you share your information you actually upload the map of your run maybe a picture from your run and it becomes like a community thing we're all getting in shape together mm. and so she you have to look at some of these apps to see if she was uploading her daily activity and if she was part of one of these online fitness communities so, and so somebody could've... would be tracking her runs every day Well, so I want to go back to the phone because we we know that there's a Fitbit and a computer involved. What about her phone? The most recent media account says that they are still looking for her phone. But I've worked with the U.S. Marshals, and I know that they are capable of lots of things when it comes to electronics and phones. So what do you guys think about the missing phone? Well, I mean, it could be destroyed. Mm -hmm. It could be that it's off and the power source is removed. Mm -hmm. And it could be that none of those things are happening and they are tracking it. I don't know. And they obviously... thrown it into water. But the phone could be a significant piece of evidence that, obviously, if it's providing leads, law enforcement's definitely not going to tell the public at this moment because it might be providing leads. They will only they will not tell the public if it doesn't benefit the investigation. Right. That's always the driving force behind the public relations arm of an investigation. If it benefits the investigation, then we do it. If it doesn't, then we don't. Because the bottom line is we need to successfully complete the investigation. So let's say, for example, that she's turning the phone on intermittently, like once every two hours or something, because she knows she has a, they don't, her abductors don't know she has her phone and she knows that she doesn't have a charger. 
So she turns it on so that it'll ping once or twice and turns it off, hoping that we're going to find her. They're not obviously going to put that information out, just like um, Bobby said. So that to me is, you know, that, that would be like a hopeful. Well, we've all seen that in trials, right, where uh, to prove a drug deal or practically anything else where you can put the offender where their phone is, it can ping off of towers and you can use a general location. So hopefully they're looking into her phone. Let's talk a little bit about suspects. Jim, this would be a case that you worked as a profiler, this kind of potential abduction case. What are you looking for? Who are you looking at? And how do you find potential suspects? Well, in this particular case, you're talking about a young lady who's 20 years of age. She's a college freshman. She probably is a sophomore or junior. Well, I mean, it's It's summer. It's summer. But I I think she was doing schoolwork. So I I think she's in summer school. That's the impression I got from the media. But yeah, she's probably a sophomore. She's probably going into her sophomore year then, as opposed to finishing her sophomore year, right? Probably. So, you know, she's young. And again, she's new to this whole college environment. This is not something that she's been doing for many years. And so that makes her particularly vulnerable. And being in a location other than her own home, that makes her vulnerable to a greater degree. So we're probably talking about somebody who has a fixation on her, who either that or she's a victim of opportunity. In other words, she, by being at her boyfriend's house and by being alone, uh, that somebody either came there because they were normally going to come to that house or came there uh, seeing her maybe run that afternoon and and then come back. And so they, they took advantage of the time when she was alone and vulnerable, getting ready for bed or something like that. And they came in and took her. Now, there may have been a knock at the door and because she doesn't normally live there, she may not have had her security awareness up. And so she could have opened the door. As my understanding, there's no evidence that there's a break in or no evidence of violence or struggle. So uh, they either used a ruse typically, or they had some quote legitimate reason to uh, get her to open that door. So right now, I I would say there's two groups of potential suspects. There's the people that that are in her circle of friends or the circle of friends of anybody who actually lives in that home and the neighbors uh, and associates of them. And then there's the sort of stranger who happened to see her, happened to get fixated, got lucky that she was alone and took advantage of that. Well, one of the things, I'm I'm an old sex crimes prosecutor, so for me, I always think about sex offenders. And one of the things I know, Bobby, you would be doing as an investigator is looking at convicted felons in the area, right? Those who may be sex offenders or may be under court order at this moment on probation. Tell us a little about what you would do. So that's part of like an investigation like this is, you know, multifaceted and you have multiple people working on it. So somebody would be looking at her electronic folks. Somebody would be doing a door-to-door canvas of the neighbors. Somebody would be looking at who her circle of friends are. So somebody would be rebuilding the last, you know, 24 to 48 hours of her life. So all of that does take place. So, yeah, somebody would be doing each of these. That's why the investigation like this early on take dozens and dozens, if not more, people. And you try to enlist state, local resources, stuff, because it's just so manpower-intensive early on in the investigation. Well, let's, so when sorry, I, go ahead. When I... 
used to do these. We had a rash of kidnappings, you'll remember, in the late 90s um, and up, up to like 2005. We had a series of them and we would door knock every sex offender within whatever particular region it was. And uh, most of them have conditions where we can go in and search as well. So we would go in and search. And I remember one time we found something. I thought I thought we had our guy and, you know, we um, locked down the house and uh, then brought in the, I wasn't working as a forensics person then, I was an agent. And we found, we were looking for a little boy and we found a pair of um, little boy underpants and it became a whole big thing. We thought it was, we didn't tell the family and then ultimately it turned out not to be, uh, not to be connected. A separate investigation ensued as a result of that. But what I'm saying is, when he said labor intensive, he's not kidding. It is, and you never know. You go every door you go up to, you don't know if you're going to be met with the shotgun, um, or with the actual offender, or and you have to be. You're telling yourself as you're walking in, I have to pay attention to every single solitary detail because a child's life depends on it. Well, let's talk suspects. And I want to be careful about this because all we have are media reports. So these facts are just based on what we've read in the media accounts. There are really a couple of people that have been developed that are reported by the news as possible suspects. One is a pig farmer. The pig farmer has been uh, in the press. We learned that he has two stalking convictions, two different women, a couple of years apart, one in, I think, 2010, one in 2014. The other person has been someone who's been arrested, who was several miles away from this town where Molly disappeared from, and he was picked up for grabbing a woman by the arm who was jogging, asking her for her phone number, and when she refused to give it, he seemed to get very upset and violent and pulled her closer to him. Oh, he gave her flowers. That she, yeah. she kicked him and got away, but she called police, and they have picked him up as a possible suspect, but they are not saying whether or not he's the real suspect. So let's talk a little bit about that development, Jim. Well, I mean, I we just can't assess either of those. I mean, obviously, if they've developed them as suspects, the procedure would be to either surveil them or bring them in for questioning and find out what their alibis were and drill down and see if they can be verified or refuted. I mean, that's all basic, you know, police work 101. But the pig farmer, for example, let's say, how far away is he? What opportunity would he have to be there? How old is he? You know, what level of uh, offenses has he been guilty of in the past? I mean, all those things are interesting questions. Obviously, there's the uh, the infamous, I think it was a Canadian case of the pig farmer who was a serial killer. And if he's that kind of guy, then I think there's a high likelihood he could be involved in this. Um if he's not that kind of guy, he could be totally uninvolved. Well, and he's fully cooperated, according to reports we get. He has spoken to the media. The FBI searched his pig farm and took his phone. And obviously, they're doing all their due diligence. And I just wanted to say, uh, before we wrap up today, the last piece of evidence that's been reported, and I think it was just reported today, was that a red shirt that they think, at least the media is reporting, they think belonged to Molly has been found somewhere in a ditch. I don't know where, but it's apparently not far from the pig farm. And so my understanding is they're now redoubling their physical searches in all of the locations. And I think you've said it to me before, and so is Jim, about concentric circles. So I would imagine that that's what they're doing. Well, can I ask about this pig farm? Because what kind of pigs does he have on it? 
I mean, does he have three, 400 pound pigs uh, that are capable yeah. of devouring destroying and yeah. devouring an entire human body? Well, he was body? first reported as a hog farmer, which would suggest to this Southern girl that you are talking about large animals, yes. Because, mm -hmm. you know, obviously you can be very confident if you know that your animals have destroyed the evidence. Um, there's some really graphic disgusting things I can think of forensically where that might be, um, you know, a necessary avenue of investigation if the pigs did eat the victim. But uh, hopefully that's not the case. Uh, hopefully the family will be able to see their daughter again alive. But, um, but if it's that's just true. a grim thing if, it's, if it is that pig farmer. Correct. But that shirt should provide a wealth of information. If, in fact, that shirt is connected to this, we'll be able to um, get her DNA and very, very, very likely the DNA of any offender or anyone else that touched that shirt. Well, th this is... I have a question, though. Wasn't there a report that there were dozens of other people missing in that same time period? There were. One of the things I think that brought the Molly Tibbetts disappearance to the public consciousness has been that there were 48 people, young people, all in their late teens and early 20s, reported missing in Iowa just in the month of July alone. And there's been some thought that that was maybe uh, hysterical and that social media has driven that outside the realm of where it really should be, which is every day people are reported missing and most of the time they return, but sometimes they're runaways, sometimes they're trafficked. I think it's just a remarkable thought to uh, to hear a statistic like that. Yeah, well, I think most people think of Iowa as a very safe and quiet and bedroom community kind of state. And so to hear that 48 were reported missing, that is a huge number. However, I think what we have to do is look back and see how many people were reported missing in June? How many people were reported every year in Iowa? How many people always go missing in Iowa during the month of July? It is the summer. It is a time when people take off. It is a time when people, you know, maybe have a little more fun than they normally do and can be missing for a period of time and get reported missing and then show up. So there are, there are a lot of reasons why it might happen, but when anybody says a number of young people in those age groups go missing, obviously we think of things like human trafficking. Well, and the attorney general for Iowa commented that generally speaking, when they winnow it all down uh, and exclude runaways, I'm not sure how she quite defines that, but excludes runaways. There are as many as 12 juveniles that is under the age of 18 reported missing every day in Iowa, mm -hmm. which I think is a remarkable statistic. And the majority of them do come back. They said, and they also said that if a person that some of these um, missing people have get counted month after month and sort of added instead of um, so if I if 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 my daughter uh, disappears and then she comes back and she disappears again it shows up as another one instead of the same person disappearing repeat, again yeah, yeah. right. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's a, a distressing trend. If it's whether they're runaways or victims of crime, we should find them. I hope we find Molly. Well, it's been great having you guys discuss this incredibly disturbing case. And I hope that we can get back together soon and talk about the great resolution to this case. That would be 
wonderful if it has a happy and uplifting resolution. But until next time, thank you for listening to Best Case, Worst Case. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clementi at Empire Studios, L.A. Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Sumba. And hosted by Wonder. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Knowledge is power, and when we know the facts about sexual abuse, we can better protect kids. Darkness to Light has already trained more than 1.4 million adults to keep children safe from sexual abuse. I'm one of those 1.4 million, Jim. Using their Stewards of Children Prevention Training, they give you and gave me the facts, tools, and tips I needed to help keep the kids I love safe. And you can do the same with their Stewards of Children Prevention Training. Get trained today to prevent, recognize, and react responsibly to child abuse in your community. Learn more about Darkness to Light and child sexual abuse prevention at www.d2l.org. That's D, the numeral 2, L.org. <laughs>